Today, on First Online with Friends, There's No Place Like Art, I, your podcast host, Fran McGarry, will take a peek into the future to pose what-if scenarios. Like, what if the insurrectionists succeeded with their plot to overthrow the election? What if texts to Mark Meadows from congressmen and others within seats of power urging the former president to declare martial law to usurp the electoral count was fulfilled? Think about it. What if the Republican future control of the House becomes a forum for QAnon and conspiracy theories to gaslight the American population. What if Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter propagates white supremacist agenda, Nazi fascism, domestic terrorist militias towards what end goal? What if our democracy is subsumed by mistruths, and our society as we know it will be mind-controlled by forces whose only purpose is to stay in power. This may sound hyperbolic, and yet these posits are not so far from reality. My guest today, science fiction author, journalist, and screenwriter, Janet Stilson, creates such a world in her dystopian novel, The Juice. Welcome, Janet. Hi, thank you. I'm pleased to be here. Let's talk about your book, The Juice. It explores the future of America and government control of media. How has your expertise in the business of entertainment and media help shape not only the arc of your story, but also your political posture as an artist? I'm very fortunate because I've had a chance to see how media has evolved over a few different decades and how we went here in the United States from three broadcast networks to a gazillion networks and streaming platforms that we have today. I've seen as an editor overseeing a publication that focused on the business of media all around the globe. I saw how it changed in other countries as well, where for a time, many of them just had government controlled media or television networks that were controlled by one or two very powerful people And then suddenly, because of satellite delivery and cable, that all changed. And along with that came the creation of channels like Fox or MSNBC that carried a very specific political view and sometimes are energized by extremely powerful politicians. And as a journalist, I was talking with a lot of media executives behind the scenes. I 
cut my teeth as a journalist at Variety and moved up to a variety of different publications. And they would talk to me for stories I was writing that had to do with things like new programming that was coming out or new technology that was coming out. And they'd, they'd tell me about their future plans. And all the while this was going on, I was also working um, on my own as a creative writer. And I always kind of kept the two worlds apart. I'm a Gemini. I can I can put a silo between different parts of my life very easily. But there came a point in time when I realized that that was just ridiculous, that one of the richest stories that I could possibly tell was to take that same kind of mindset of always looking into the future of media and where things were headed which was on the minds of so many of these executives, and to do a little bit of my own uh, thinking about the world that could be become ours in the future. And so uh, one of the things in the story that I did was I, I said, you know, just like Fran, you were talking about what ifs. What if our PBS network became entirely government controlled? so that it wasn't funded by the public. There was no pretext of objective news. And instead, the vice president of the United States became the the chairman of the company. And then also I looked into, I imagined what it would be like if someone came up with a substance, a secret substance that could make very already very charming people you know the Stephen Colbert's of the world the Rachel Maddow's and make them extraordinarily charismatic much more so than we know them so that their transmissions all over the world were able to bend the minds of people not just with what they might say in a talk show but also commercial messaging, how they might, you know, move product off the shelves if they appeared in certain commercials. And so that is a little bit of the of what goes into the story of the juice, which refers to the chemical substance that I just referenced. And it was a chip that was implanted. I mean, conspiracy theorists would have a ball with this because they're now saying this is what the uh, COVID vaccine is all about. They prey upon these fears of control and mind control. And it's kind of already happening. Yeah. Yeah. We just had the former president of the United States create baseball cards in the image of superheroes. And for $99, you know, you can get this as a Christmas present. It seems so bizarre and the juxtaposition between what is really happening and what is happening in your book are not all that far apart have you found you know that to be true as you're doing the kind of work that you're doing oh yeah absolutely i mean you know one of my favorite authors is william gibson he's a science fiction author 
And one of my favorite quotes from him is that the future is here. It's just not evenly distributed. So it's like, yes, pieces of this are here. That's what inspired me to write about what I did, for sure. Absolutely. That's part of the fun of being a sci-fi writer. You know, I feel like a, I always tell people I feel like a crow because I'm flying over the field of possible ideas and I see a shiny object and I pick it up and I put it. <laughs> yes. I love that image. And through those shiny objects, what do you hope to expose? What do you hope to raise awareness uh, through this book? And I know you have you're working on another book, but I want to really get to the crux of how your work is impacting the political arena that we are facing as a nation. Well, I don't know that it's impacting anything yet. That would be that would be great if it did. But listen, there's a lot of reasons why I wrote this book. I wrote it also because I just wanted to entertain people. I didn't want it to be like eating spinach and liver, you know. I wanted, <laughs> right. I wanted it to be fun to read. And and I built in some suspense, a whole mystery element and a romance angle to it. But I also wanted people to think a little bit more about where we might be headed from the standpoint of communications and how it's manipulated and massaged by people with all sorts of different interests and money. Oh yeah, absolutely. And money for sure. So I think that we all know how polarized the world is, not just in America, but in other countries too. And we tend to just listen to news and personalities that express our own points of view. And so it doesn't help things any in terms of trying to really see objectively where the truth lies. And there's such a need, I think, for people to have the tools to really understand when bias is taking place. And maybe they agree with that bias, and that's fine. They can. To really be more aware of it, I know that it's being taught in some schools, but I don't think it's being taught to the extent that it needs to be taught. I think we need more tools. Bringing up a very important point, because I, I was a classroom teacher, and fortunately, I was in a school district. It was very open, very encouraging uh, in terms of exposing uh, youngsters to all different points of view. And now I don't think I would want to be a teacher with what's going on in our education system where they want to have these school boards shutting down who can teach what and what book and how things should be taken off the, the shelves. I love the quote that you said by William uh, Gibson, the future is here. It, you know, you mentioned you talked with executive broadcast people. What kind of insights did you get from them that you may or may not have been aware of? I can't think of anything specifically to tell you the truth. I wish I had a good answer. I wish that, you know, I could tell you a good story about how Rupert Murdoch told me X, Y, and Z, but I just, sorry, 
I got nothing. <laughs> so how did you take that shiny object that you talked about and evolve into this? Did you ever write science fiction before? Was this Stop. Yes, I had I had written science fiction before, um, but the shiny object wasn't the what the, came out of the mouths of these executives. It was just it was just very helpful to me in terms of the whole thought process of you know imagining media in the future, and also having walked the corridors of so many big companies. I had a sense of their world and a sense of who these executives are so that I was able to create characters within these universes. You know, if you think of the the TV series Succession and you think of it cast, let's say, 20 years from now, and you think about all the political jousting and internal dynamics between people, that's the sort of thing that sort of texturing was the sort of thing that I was able to use from those experiences looking at the first sentence of your novel and it opens with the ratchety dunk ratchety dunk of the subway car had me in a deep state of zenitude so when a giant tomahawk slashed two inches from my face I didn't blink but I had to smile. What a great opening. Had me right there. I knew right away I was in another world. And it is that hook, that talent that you have to open the world that you are creating. I'm curious to find out more about how you made the leap from being a journalist to being a science fiction writer. Well, you know, they always have run in my life as a double stream. I've been writing fiction since I was 12 years old. And I grew up in a a wonderful small town in upstate New York, the daughter of a hardware store owner and a homemaking teacher. And you couldn't get more, you know, Norman Rockwell than that world. And so my parents were very practical. They knew that I loved to write. I was, you know, always, my teachers always commented on my big imagination, but they were very practical people. And so I realized that the ability to actually make a decent living as a fiction writer was probably the odds weren't great. And so I turned to journalism as another form of storytelling and just fell in love with it head over heels because, you know, you get to talk with people. I'd be sitting at a desk in some big news room, you know, newspaper newsroom and yakking on the phone like a teenager with people and, and taking notes on what they told me and then writing them down and spitting them out into the world. It's really something that we all do on a certain level. And I got to do it as my job and reporting about an industry that is constantly changing. Nothing ever stays the same, which makes it, you know, we're inundated every day with breaking news. You know, this is happening now. I mean, it's exhausting. And to your point, think about when I read how many years ago, I think I even taught it, uh, Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale. I mean, that was just like so futuristic. And here we are with women's rights, 
you know, going back to the 50s. Where is that going to take us? Where do you want to take your reading audiences to? Well, when you ask that question, do you mean where would I like the world to go? Or do you mean like future novels and storylines for novels? Let's start with the first one. Where do you want it to go, real world? I would like, you know, it's so utopian. It's one of these things where I don't think it ever can be achieved. But I think that what we should aim for is a world in which people can be free to express themselves on mass forms of media in their own sweet, quirky, opinionated, not so ways, as long as they don't hurt anybody. And there should be a way for the world to filter messaging that pertains to things that are really important in all our lives. You know, the way governments are uh, responding to the needs of their citizens. Are they giving tornado victims in Louisiana the proper funding to get back up on their feet or whatever? We need to know the truth. That's really the one of the underlying themes in all the work that I tend to write is getting at the truth, because that's what I've been trained to do as a as a journalist. That makes sense. I can see that now. What about the next part of the question? How this will transcend or coalesce to your next book or next project? Well, right now I'm writing a sequel to The Juice, and it picks up the story of The Juice a decade or two after the final chapter of The Juice. And I don't want to give too much away, but there are uh, some of the main characters, all the main characters in The Juice are there, but they play more supporting character roles. And their children step to the fore and take the story and lead us on a a little bit of a roller coaster ride. Oh, I can't wait. I loved how the, the juice ended. It really filled me with hope. And it just so happened that I finished it just before the midterm elections. And I just felt like there's hope. You know, there's something good that's coming down the, the avenue for us as Americans. And like you said, worldwide, what's going on in Peru and, and Germany arresting domestic terrorists and Nazis. It's just all so bizarre. How do you keep yourself grounded? That's what I want to know. I find that because I still work as a journalist, as well as a a creative writer, that I have to meditate. It's really, really important for me to, before I start writing on my novel, the current work in progress, or even before I go to bed, to be able to put all of the chaotic elements of life off to one side so that I can focus on what's important to me right then and right there. And without doing that, it's just, I'm just all over the map. I got to do it. Yeah. And how does your writing regimen What is your writing regimen? Well, I'm one of those people that has to do my creative writing first thing in the morning, or it's just 
not going to get done because I'm going to be torn in 50 zillion other directions. So I make sure I'm, you know, caffeinated and (laughs) do some yoga. And then I sit down and I start writing or not. Doesn't matter. I sit in my seat for a few hours every, almost every single day. I'm impressed. (laughs) Well, you know, once I'm just a creature of habit, that's all it is. Before we close, I'd like to have you share maybe an insight or an anecdote that really propels you to continue to do the kind of work that you do and to make our world a richer, deeper, kinder place to live. Well, I think that I'm not going to answer your question directly, but I will tell you that one of the things that really helps me with my writing is to listen to other writers talk about their experiences. And I think that that kind of sharing for a creative artist is so precious. And it's so helpful to me to understand what it was like for Stephen King to move through addiction and a terrible car accident to continue writing and to be better and stronger than ever, or what it takes for Philip Pullman, who wrote his dark materials, to come up with those incredibly creative ideas. How the heck he does it is just the best thing for me. It's just the the juice for me, my personal juice. There you go. I love full circle. And I will be sharing where we can buy your book on the blog. And I'd like to thank you for joining me today and talking about what we do and why we do what we do. Thank you, Janet. Oh, I had a blast. Thank you so much, Fran. Find out more about what Fran is up to. Go to her website at firstonlinewithfran.com. This program was produced by March Hair Media and recorded at Wheat Sheet Studio Productions. <laughs>